Hi, everybody. Mark Iskowitz here, MMNM Executive Editor, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast. February's focus on data continues with this week's guest. I'm speaking with Murray Aitken. He's Executive Director of the IQVIA Institute for Human Data Science. How are you doing, Murray? Great, thanks. Good to be here. Thank you for being here, and uh, great to have you in studio. Appreciate it. We'll get to the interview uh, with Mary in a sec, just a few housekeeping items as we usually do. Uh, ticket sales for our 40 Under 40 event are on sale now, and the event takes place on May 12 in NYC. Uh, the list, of course, was revealed a couple weeks ago. Uh, and uh, the following day, May 13, will be the uh, MMM Spring Conference, MMM Transform. Uh, and you can get tickets for that as well. Um, the awards deadline for submissions is coming up April 8th. Uh, the agency 100 questionnaires uh, for inclusion in the T100 are due March 3rd, so that deadline's coming up. The first MMM Pitch Slam takes place next Thursday in New York City. And uh, information for any of those uh, items that I mentioned can be found online. And uh, last but not least, this month is Data Month at MMM, as I mentioned. And besides our February data issue, which is dubbed the data issue, thanks to its focus on healthcare data and analytics as it pertains to healthcare marketing, throughout the month we've been featuring a number of guests on this podcast who have a unique perspective on data. And that's a perfect segue to Murray. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're all familiar with the Institute's semi annual reports, uh, their U.S. Medicine Use and Spending Report, uh, to their Orphan Drugs Report. And recently, the Institute issued a new one on a new discipline that you're calling human data science, which you write is increasingly being used to better understand everything from social determinants of health and other disease drivers to guiding post-marketing decision-making. Uh, so Murray, uh, let, you know, welcome again. And let's start with a definition. What, what is human data science? Thanks uh, for that question. Um, and human data science is something that we think about as the intersection of data science and human science. And, and the reason we think that that intersection is important is we're in a period now where we know that basic science, scientific understanding, uh, mining, all that we can learn from the human genome, um, and, and all of the advances in understanding um, basic science is happening at the same time that we have this explosion in data science, more data becoming available, uh, uh, development of artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities and all of that being applied to larger and larger data sets. When you bring those two together, uh, data science and human science, um, I think we come up with something new. Uh, which we're calling human data science. Uh, it's also a way to think more broadly about health and wellness issues than we often do. Many of us in and around life sciences and, and the broader healthcare ecosystem, uh, we get very um, absorbed and involved in our own piece of the picture. Um, but I think increasingly it's, it's clear that unless everybody is able to periodically step back from their area of expertise and look at the, the full uh, story, we're never going to really be able to um, uh, fundamentally improve uh, both healthcare as well as wellness and, and prevention of disease. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at is how do we combine these capabilities uh, on the human science side with the capabilities on, on data science uh, so that we can um, answer some of the questions that we don't have good answers to now 
um, and to develop new approaches uh, to fundamentally improve um, health and human wellness. Okay. And a lot of human uh, data goes into the equation as well, right? Like on environmental conditions and, and the drivers of disease. Yes. So one of the things that we recognize is that a lot of the uh, of, of the data science right now in healthcare is being uh, focused on actually a relatively narrow set of data, uh, which is often patient called patient data. It's often data that is recorded in electronic health records or insurance claims or prescription claims, uh, which can provide uh, great insight, um, but it's still rather narrow. Uh, in terms of um, understanding a, an individual. So what we're saying is there is a, uh, a need to broaden the type of data that is being looked at. Uh, first, to, uh, to gather more information about a patient uh, beyond their periodic uh, interventions with the, the health system, uh, so more continuous monitoring. And of course, technology is now enabling that continuous monitoring mm -hmm. to, to happen and for that data to, to flow. Uh, and then there's a second uh, type of data, which is what we would call human, human data. Um, all the things about an individual that matter to their health and wellness and, and ultimately outcomes. And that includes uh, the, what are referred to as the social determinants um, of health. We're not sure we like that term, but anyway, it does mean where people live, where people work, what level, what, what family connection, uh, social connections they have. Um, their zip code. Their huh? zip code. They're, well, yes. I mean, a lot of it um, shows up and, and, and can be interpreted through their, uh, through their zip code. But without that understanding, and of course, there's also the genomic understanding that's increasingly important. Um, we don't think we're ever going to um, solve some of the um, big questions that are still out there in healthcare, mm -hmm. you know, such as you know, why is the life expectancy in the U.S. not increasing? In fact, it's been declining for the last uh, three years, mm -hmm. although it looks like it's slightly turned around in 2018 now. Uh, but, but what are the underlying reasons for that, these deaths of despair that are a major public health um, issue in this country, um, you know, wh wh what do we what do we still need to understand uh, that causes that those deaths to to be so uh, common and, and prevalent throughout the country? Uh, as example, and again, we're not going to answer that question by examining electronic health record data or insurance claims data. Uh, we need to be able to access right. uh, broader types of information. Sure. Sure. So, so when you combine that type of information, like the EHR data, or it may be unstructured or structured, with patients' interactions with the health system claims data, with the human data, like the social determinants of health data, for lack of a better term, and you apply machine learning, AI, different uh, data science techniques, uh, and you, you, you mentioned the example of diseases of despair, like opioid addiction. You know, right. what, what are some of the at least questions, say, that, 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 you're, that we're realizing anew or, or some of the, the insights that we're starting to glean about these things, how to combat opioid addiction, that kind of thing? Yeah, so I think one of the things that the, the broader set of uh, data uh, can, can help answer is, is really to, uh, to, to understand the, what I would call the segments of despair, um, right? L like any big issue, it's not one monolithic thing. Mm. Um, and the ability to be able to get 
a couple of levels down and understand the different clusters um, of circumstances that result in a, an opioid addiction or, um, or, or higher than average suicide levels and so on. I mean, that's, that's where the real value is because that's where solutions uh, can be developed at a more granular level in a more personalized way to use a, a term that gets applied a lot to drugs, but mm-hmm. actually we should all be focused on personalizing uh, um, healthcare. Uh, but you can only get there with uh, an evidence base uh, that 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 enables you to sort of explore that broader range of um, underlying factors uh, that that result in these sorts of um, uh, issues, including uh, deaths uh, of despair. Sure. So even even just kind of segmentation is an important uh, you know move forward and. Yeah, I mean, in the report you mentioned other examples like Alzheimer's uh, research. Uh, you know, you, you also mention um, uh, analyzing outbreaks uh, yes. and, and healthcare marketing. So I think our, you know, our point is when you look at an uh, an issue like Alzheimer's, um, you know, here's a disease that um, afflicts 50 million uh, uh, people. That's a um, a major. Um, social cost and, and uh, healthcare cost, um, uh, at which you know hundreds of millions, uh, or, or and indeed many billions of of investment um, have been uh, applied in order to try to understand the underlying etiology of the disease um, as a, as a way to move towards uh, finding something that can actually. Um, address uh, or reverse the the disease, uh, and that's been going on for 30, 40 years. Um, and we have in our in our report a, a little chart that that uh, you know marks each of the uh, drug research programs that has uh, failed um, over the last 25 years, and there's almost a hundred of them. Um, with um, with you know at some level relatively little progress. Of course, we learn from every failure, but. Um, are we making enough progress? So it helps you know, brings eternal with biogens <laughs> out of Canamab, right? Well, th- that's right, and and so we're all going to watch very closely how that plays out uh, this year, um, and 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 the, the the consequences of decisions made by uh, by the company as well as by the regulators and and all other stakeholders who have uh, an interest in in Alzheimer's, which is pretty much everyone, um, but. Uh, the point that we would make is, uh, you know, again, despite all the advances and, and the investment, we're still making um, slow progress uh, towards really um, understanding that disease. So there's more to be done. Um, and we shouldn't be, you know, sitting back and feeling like, okay, AI and ML is taking us uh, exactly where we need to go, or all the NI- NIH grants are, are helping us understand, uh, you know, the underlying uh, uh, science. Um, of of disease, we've got you know a lot further mm-hmm, to go. Mm-hmm. I think you know on the on the measles uh, uh, outbreak um, situation, you know that's a you know a, another major public health um, crisis um, in this country and and actually several other uh, developed countries. Um, and I'm not going to get into the coronavirus right now, but but there will. Uh, potentially be a lot of um, sort of overlapping uh, issues there that we know when we when we see measles uh, becoming um, uh, where we see these outbreaks um, why is that really um, happening and again we sort of know the answer but 
what are we really able to do about it and how are we able to, again, apply data analytics to more precisely understand the problem so that we can come up with sort of public policy or public action uh, actions that will help stem uh, that kind of um, uh, outbreak. And I think your, your, your point about we're, we've come a long way, but we're not there yet, especially applies to, you know, we saw some recent articles about using AI to monitor um, the coronavirus outbreak, for instance. And we're sitting here both on a day where the CDC has kind of uh, uh, issued a warning that uh, could come to these shores, you know, to, to a greater extent. So, you know, the advances can't come soon enough, but it's important to realize that um, we're not there yet in, in terms of applying these data science tools to really um, to, to, to make a, a significant difference. Right. I think, I think we will probably see this coronavirus outbreak no matter how it um, ends up as uh, being a bit of a turning point in bringing um, heightened um, awareness to an issue that's not entirely new. I mean, it has been talked about, but but in, in more limited sort of public health settings um, in the past. But I think the, the, the global um, sort of relevance of the need to be able to uh, deal with pandemics of this uh, type uh, and this is not the only one we're going to see, you know, in our in our lifetime by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think it will bring more focus to what can we do uh, to apply again the new capabilities that we have, the new technology, the new data science um, abilities. Um, how can we apply these to address these uh, these urgent issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a nice comment, uh, smart comment that you know this this will mark a turning point. It'll be interesting to see. Um, you know where we, where we go from here. Uh, one one further example uh, in, in, in this uh, question before we move on. That's healthcare marketing. Of kind of a bias given that M M M is a publication that focuses on healthcare sure. marketers. But can you talk about an example of where these techniques have uh, helped uh, marketers sharpen their craft? Yeah. So at Acuvia, where we as a company are, are clearly involved a lot in um, supporting. Uh, decision-making uh, about uh, resource allocation and approaches that are that are taken by manufacturers and indeed other stakeholders uh, to as we say get the right patient to the right <laughs> get the right uh, drug to the right patient at the at the right time um, I think what's what's important particularly since there is a greater focus on outcomes on patient outcomes um, you know are we seeing measurable uh, improvement in, in those outcomes? There's a greater need to say what actually determines uh, that outcome beyond the drug. And uh, I think we, we recognize that, um, again, some of these social determinants, some of these other factors that actually drive um, patient adherence they drive patient response to, uh, to, to the medical consultation, uh, response to the drug actually has a, a significant impact on, on outcomes. And therefore, when we're looking to you know, market uh, these drugs, I think understanding that the full picture of what it takes for this drug to deliver the maximum value to this kind of patient at a segmented level uh, is necessary. This is the, you know, the precision marketing of the medicine. It's the precision treatment of patients that we want clinicians to understand and embrace, and for which we need some evidence, uh, and that evidence is going to, you know, come out 
of the um, application of, of data science um, to uh, you know to clinical data that is uh, that that's available. So I think you know human data science is very much relevant is very relevant to um, you know medical marketing uh, because it enables a more precise approach uh, to be applied uh, in in marketing uh, drugs to clinicians as well as to patients. And, and sort of narrowing your resources and, and your focus and yeah. making that more efficient. So the, the efficiency, uh, there's clearly a, a, a drive towards efficiency. We know a lot of resources are wasted um, in marketing. We know a lot of resources are wasted in, in uh, the wrong drug uh, being given to, to, the, to the patient. Um, so, you know, in that sense, uh, absolutely data science is, a, is an enabler of a more efficient allocation of, uh, of resources. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, you know, as we move in this country from fee-for-service to value-based care, um, and uh, we look to foster that um, kind of transition, uh, and then we have in the background the triple aim, you know, better patient experience, lower cost, um, better quality. Um, how, how do you see uh, these... The, the, the discipline of human data science, you know, delivering uh, on that mission? Well, I think it's very much at the center of it. Um, I think the reality is we've still got a lot of challenges to be able to deliver on outcomes-based contracts or value-based um, contracts or the, the really the, the, the triple aim as well. Um, and a lot of that is because we're, we're still not able to get access to uh, the information that matters. We're still not able to disaggregate the impacts of different factors on a patient's outcome. And if, if there's payments that are being attached to, to outcomes, we need to be able to be clear about what's causing what, not just correlated with what. Um, and all of that you know, requires a, a heavy dose of uh, data science um, with an understanding of the underlying human science and the, and the biology of, of the disease as well. So, you know, again, we've been talking for quite a while, you know, a decade or, or more uh, about outcomes-based um, contracts, for example, yet the number of cases um, is still relatively small, and that's partly because of the nature of the, um, the medicines, the nature of the patients and their, their comorbidities, uh, and the uh, ability of uh, payers or, or the providers involved uh, to actually be able to um, analyze their information sufficiently to arrive at a determination as to whether the outcome uh, endpoint has been achieved um, or not. This is all, you know, it's easy to say it is more complex to actually deliver on. And, and right now we've got relatively small number of, of drugs and, and a relatively small number in this country of providers or, or payers who are actually able to um, deliver on what we talk about and think about as um, outcomes-based contracts or value-based uh, contracts. Right. They're not necessarily delivering on the on the vision yet um, uh, you know as, as some of them strive to say measure total cost of care um, when a drug um, is used in, in a particular health plan um, right. they don't necessarily um, have the the means to to, to measure that uh, to, to the greatest extent is that a fair assessment yes yes especially when it's uh, when we're talking about um, sort of individual drug and individual 
plan mm-hmm. um, arrangements. If we're talking about um, you know medicine, practicing medicine in capitated plans or you know or, or a, a global funding. Mm-hmm. For a population, I think there's there's more flexibility there because actually getting the specifics right about which drug uh, caused which outcome is less uh, necessary. Um, so maybe we need to, you know, uh, think about these arrangements in that broader um, sense than an individual drug, uh, you know. Uh, promising an individual um, outcome for a particular patient. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, the bar's pretty high to be able to actually um, uh, measure and, uh, and uh, implement on that. Again, th- there are some e- exceptions to that, but I think sort of by and large, when you look at the, the overall um, use of medicines, um, I, th- I think the um, uh, capitated plans are, are where we'll see most progress. Right, those at, at risk, uh, right. with ACOs and, and so forth, uh, and you know now now that we see sort of the, the curative therapies coming online, gene therapies, cell therapies, where they're offering a money back guarantee um, if the treatment is not indeed a one and done, right. um, the endpoints or uh, the guarantees are kind of fluid. Um, so right. these value based uh, risk shares are kind of a work in progress. Yeah, although I would say for the for the cell therapies, the gene therapies, it, it's it's relatively straightforward to, in those cases, to That's know true. whether yeah. the, the, the patient has responded. Um, but a diabetes drug for a patient with diabetes and a cardiovascular condition and perhaps a, a respiratory condition as well, um, sorting through outcomes and measuring outcomes uh, for that patient uh, is a lot more complex than it is right. to determine whether the cell therapy has had the uh, intended uh, effect on the patient. Good point. Good point. Okay, so let's uh, segue over to orphan drugs, um, where uh, we know um, there's a great deal of innovation going on um, on the margins there that oftentimes um, benefits other areas of drug development. Um, how can uh, data science or human data science uh, enable us to to close the innovation gap there? So when we look at uh, rare diseases. Uh, as often cited, there's about 7,000 of them. Um, I think the number is actually um, increasing because we are able to redefine diseases in, in narrower ways and, and hit that 200,000 patient threshold um, in the US. So my hope is actually we're on the road to where every disease is a rare disease, meaning fewer than 200,000 patients are defined as uh, the, the target um, uh, population or the afflicted hmm. population. Yeah, uh, that, that's a, that's a long at, yeah. time, a long-term sort of aspiration of mine is that we will get to um, a point where we're, we, we've advanced precision medicine to the point where uh, everything is rare. But um, what, what we do know is there's been tremendous advances uh, uh, largely on the back of the Orphan Drugs Act to encourage uh, investment in uh, uh, treatments for these rare diseases, which typically have few, if any, um, effective uh, treatments or disease-modifying uh, uh, treatments, uh, yet we still have a long way uh, to go. Um, I think what we're seeing is a, a human data science approach is uh, helping us first understand um, the disease progression um, and the the underlying the natural history of the disease. Um, so you know it does 
you know, for example, in neuromuscular disease, which is an area we've done a, an entire report on, uh, that was supported by the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Um, it's remarkable how little we know about the natural history of so many of the rare neuromuscular diseases that uh, are often afflicting um, very young children as well. Muscular atrophy uh, being it, one of those, it, right? Exactly, yes. Um, so our ability to um, capture sufficient uh, real-world data uh, to be able to um, explore further the the underlying uh, drivers of that disease, including any genomic um, uh, or biomarkers um, associated with that disease. You know that's an area of great promise where there has been um, a lot of progress made, um, but still more to be done. We also see that data science can be applied to solve one of the frustrating uh, gaps in treating patients with rare diseases, which is actually finding the patients or the patients finding the treatment. Uh, what's referred to as the diagnostic odyssey is still um, a, a reality for, and, and, and I particularly think of the parents of, of young uh, infants um, who know there's something not quite uh, right, but it takes, um, often cases, years uh, to actually pinpoint what that, that issue is. Um, we, can do a, we can do a lot better. So one of the areas that at IQVIA uh, we've been doing some work on is, is actually uh, finding um, predictors of, uh, of, of a disease in, uh, in, in broader sets of um, patient data so that even for patients who are not diagnosed with the disease, we can, um, we can assess the probability that there may be, um, there, that this disease may be present in that um, population. Um, so in some cases, we've been able to improve by a couple of orders of magnitude, uh, the ability to predict um, uh, patient groups that may include uh, patients with a particular rare disease and thereby shortening the, uh, the, the diagnostic time and, and getting uh, an available therapy um, to that patient quicker than mm -hmm. otherwise would be the uh, case. So finding, finding the patients and the patients finding the treatments, um, you know, that's an area where we can uh, imagine a lot of uh, progress in, in short order, I would say, uh, by applying human data science approach. Sure. So helping patients find uh, the therapy and vice versa. Uh, we also see, uh, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, there's 7,000 of these and growing, and there's only about 5% uh, of those uh, have a treatment for them. So, you know, the development of, of therapies uh, for them is, is another gap. Um, you know, we, we've seen some, I wrote a story recently about AI being used to combine uh, existing therapies to see if they have any response against um, existing rare diseases. Uh, we see some progress there. Other big gaps in the rare disease ecosystem that, that you see? Well, I think um, diagnostics in general yeah. um, is not always keeping up with the advances in therapeutics. Um, and if you don't have the right diagnostic tools, available at the right time, you miss the opportunity to um, identify um, uh, the, the, the rare disease in that uh, patient. Um, I think we also see um, that the, uh, that, 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 you know, frankly, clinician awareness um, of what's out there 
um, is 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 lacking. Um, we also, um, I think, need w more work on uh, defining endpoints um, in sort of clinically meaningful ways. Uh, again, for many of these diseases, there's not a lot of understanding of the nat natural history, um, not a lot of uh, you know therapeutics uh, already available. So defining the relevant endpoints, whether it be a surrogate endpoint or not. Um, I think that's another area where, um, again, a, a human data science approach can help uh, move us forward. Sure, yeah, yeah. right, right. Um, defining, um, you know, the, the A1C uh, of any given disease is, is very important. Well, and, and if I might just pick up on that point, yeah. because HbA1c is certainly a very important, uh, uh, you know, marker for diabetes. But um, we've actually issued a recent report on um, time and range as a metric, um, in addition to HbA1c, that appears to be uh, relevant. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, diabetes care. So it's not just whether the patient achieves their HbA1c level, but also over a 24-hour a day, uh, you know, on, on a 24-hour basis, how much of that time is spent mm -hmm. within um, a, a certain range uh, around that HbA1c level is also a relevant marker uh, with, a, with a correlation to outcomes. And if that's the case, then being able to monitor um, a patient's HbA1c continuously, um, it becomes much more important. And of course, that is now possible. Again, we've got the technology to enable that monitoring to occur on a, on a continuous basis. Yeah. Um, and so what we've written in our report and actually modeled using the IQVIA core diabetes model, um, you know, there can be some significant uh, improvements in outcomes and reductions in, in complication costs um, related to diabetes because it turns out it's not just HbA1c level that sure. matters. This time and range is, okay. is an additional uh, metric that is uh, relevant and uh, valuable. And again, that's an example of where data science being applied uh, can actually advance our understanding. So sure, sure. I just wanted to mention that That's great, when, no. you, when you said HbA1c, yeah, uh, it's yeah. our favorite example it's, it's, right it now. It is indeed, where, and, and you yeah. know, LDLC probably and uh, cardiovascular, yes. and, and physicians really rely on some surrogates that have a clear line to outcomes, and they'll start using a product before the outcome studies come back because they know the surrogate can really be trusted right. to really make an impact on outcomes. That's right. So That's right. Uh, we're running out of time here probably, but just uh, one last question before we get to the lightning round would be, uh, you know, IQVIA Institute publishes their outlook reports every year. And I wanted to ask you, I'd be remiss in, in asking you to, if, uh, not asking you to give a global outlook on the drug market over the next five years. You know, and what, what, should be watch, what should we be watching out for in terms of new drug launches, uh, patent expiries, pricing pressures, et cetera? You know, give, me, give us some quick bro, you know, brush strokes uh, that we can expect over the next few years. Right, so we're, we're working on uh, our, our Global Outlook report. I think March 10th is okay. the uh, publication date. But I think, you know, what we're looking for is um, moderate growth in the market for pharmaceuticals, um, you know, in the low single digits uh, globally, um, including in the U.S., and even the emerging markets um, have slowed down uh, somewhat from, from the past. Coronavirus, uh, of course, being... 
uh, something we haven't factored into our forecasts. Uh, but we're seeing, I would, I would call it moderate growth. We um, see continued, um, you know, high levels of activity of in the R&D pipeline. Um, we're projecting um, a, you know, sort of historically large numbers of new drugs being launched, many of which will be orphan drugs with narrow patient populations, many of which will be oncology, because that's, uh, you know, clearly the largest therapy area in the pipeline. Um, when we look at the science, um, we're excited by the, um, you know, again, the, 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 the promise that these new drugs are bringing. I think the you know, the bar is high in terms of the scientific breakthroughs uh, that are being uh, developed in the, in the pipeline and, and coming through to market. Um, that being said, the, the number of patients um, who will, um, you know, benefit from these drugs, you know, on average is, is probably, um, you know, coming down as more of these drugs are, um, uh, are aimed at small uh, patient populations. And I think the companies that are bringing these to market have to, um, you know, recognize that and, and ensure that, um, again, making sure that all the patients who will benefit from the drug are actually able to uh, receive it. In terms of um, patent expiries, we've got, you know, a lot of uh, big old uh, drugs, uh, great drugs that will be coming to the end of their life um, over the next um, uh, five years and, and seeing uh, generic competition or increasingly biosimilar uh, competition. And, and that's one area we um, we do talk about in the, in the report. I think 2020 is a, is a turning point in the U.S. in terms of the, uh, the, the market and the, for biosimilars and the role that they play um, in healthcare. So uh, for companies uh, with those uh, products losing exclusivity, they can expect to see um, you know, a, a pretty rapid uh, reduction in their use and, and sales, um, assuming we've got lower cost options coming into the market. Um, but I think, you know, overall, it's a, um, you know, steady growth. Um, you know, we're still talking about a $1 trillion uh, market for medicines globally. It's a big number. Um, it's not so easy to grow that size number at, at double digits, um, you know, as, as, as was the case um, several years ago. We're also not building in any particular... Um, breakthroughs, including for Alzheimer's, that would sort of fundamentally move the okay. needle, um, as might be the case. Again, we'll, we'll follow at a Canumab very closely. Um, you know, on the other hand, you've got things like the virus now that's, that's unlikely to have a positive impact and will probably have a negative impact on the, on the market, um, you know, depending on, on, on how it plays out. So there's always puts and takes. Um, in our uh, in reality, right, right. that uh, that affect our forecast. So. Yeah, we we saw uh, Moderna just saying they're going to move a, a vaccine yes. into the clinic very shortly. Yes. but the antibodies uh, research is going to take longer, uh, of course. Right. Um, right. Uh, and we're putting out, you know, speaking of data in our March issue, we're going to uh, putting out a piece of data that that, that there was a study uh, on and, and it appeared in Nature, actually uh, the journal Nature last uh, this this past month, um, showing uh, analyzing uh, drug uh, approvals of the last uh, couple of decades. And, um, you know, when we look at um, the lifetime value of therapeutics uh, with the number of, of um, therapeutics that are being approved by the FDA in this country, um, it seems that the industry is really kind of getting used to a new normal. 
and that new normal would be more drugs, smaller markets. So to your point, you know, the, the FDA is on this kind of historic run of, of approving a large number of drugs, but for smaller markets. And I think that's um, reflected in the business decisions that uh, drug companies are making. We, we track the 15 largest pharmaceutical companies, and, and for, in 2019, uh, we saw their spending on R&D up 26%, uh, if I recall correctly, over the five-year uh, prior period. So from 2014 to 2019, uh, investment in, in R&D uh, was up 26% for those companies, a much higher mm -hmm. increase than their sales were up or mm -hmm. their operating profit w was up. And that, to us, reflects what we refer to at IQV as the doubling down on R&D innovation that we see the industry um, uh, doing. And um, we think that's, um, that, that's a very positive outlook for the future. We would also just add that the emerging biopharma companies, so you know, the large pharma are one cohort, but, but the several thousand uh, emerging biopharma companies or biotech companies um, are also, you know, more money is going into into those companies, and they're playing a, a, an ever larger role, uh, particularly in in discovery, research, and and early stage uh, development of uh, innovative medicines. Sure, twenty six percent certainly, a it qualifies as a, as a doubling down, um, and uh, you know, uh, but the um, you know lifetime value of those therapies we're seeing kind of. Um, moderate, uh, as, as, as you seem to be saying. Okay, so uh, let, let's move on to the lightning round, shall we? Okay. Okay, so uh, uh, what do you read every day, Murray? So what do I read every day? Um, well, I read the, the New York Times and the, and the Journal. I also follow Twitter um, closely. I have a, um, I would call it a curated uh, uh, set of people that I follow, and I really do find that the most efficient way to stay up to speed and to be able to um, very efficiently click through to the source uh, material uh, that goes beyond the, the 140 uh, characters. Um, and so that's something that I, I uh, monitor um, through the course of uh, each day. Okay, great. And uh, who do you follow in, in the data science area? Well, so I have a lot of uh, sort of uh, 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 academics uh, who do interesting work uh, in and around uh, data science. Um, a lot of it is sort of policy oriented because I do fundamentally feel that if we're not applying data science in the right way to making informed policy decisions, then we are going to go further off the rails than we may already be um, as, a, as a country, and, and I would apply that uh, globally as well. Uh, so I look at what um, Richard Frank is publishing, or Rena Conti, or David Cutler, or Amitabh Chandra, uh, Caleb Alexander. I mean, these are all people that um, that we know well. Um, often they they work with um, with some of our uh, data, and we like to see mm -hmm. our data being used uh, by researchers um, to ultimately influence um, po policy decisions in a positive way. Um, and they always seem to have um, interesting new. Uh, approaches um, to their to their research that I, I like to learn about. Yeah, thank thank you for offering those names. I I, I concur with you. When when we sort of run with data, we use we leverage data in some way. We always get you know nice thankful notes back you know from from the uh, people who collected that data. I think 
data scientists want to see their data utilized, you know, and right. uh, for, for, for the public good. Finally, uh, what do you do to unwind? Uh, well, at, at heart, I'm a musician, so oh. I play piano, um, and I, I can wind up or wind down by playing uh, huh. music, uh, and I also like to listen to um, a lot of music as well. Uh, what, classical jazz. Well, uh, so in the one that I enjoy the most is opera. Actually, okay. Uh -huh. in, in it's a it's a yeah it, it's fascinating to me, um, and uh, it's uh, always uh, I I learn something new every time I uh, listen to an opera. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so uh, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much again for coming in, Murray. Really appreciate it. And, You're welcome. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. Let's let's do it again. Sure. Look forward to reading the U.S. Medicines Report when that comes out, as, as we always do. And uh, we're going to call it there. So um, thanks to our guest again for coming in. Uh, thank you to all for listening. Uh, for Larry Dobrow, this is Mark Iskowitz saying so long from our studios in New York.